Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Therapists Uncensored. This is a podcast that breaks down interpersonal science into practical and understandable tidbits. And as you listen, I can just imagine little light bulbs of insight appearing above your head. You're going to be surprised and touched at what you learn about yourself as you get more accurate and in-depth view of your mind and your heart and as you figure out those close to you. Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now, here are your co-hosts, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey, everybody. We are back, ready to take off on season four. And I don't know about you, Sue. I really am ready. Me too. Oh, my gosh. Our community, I have to say... I'm sure it's not the biggest community. It's probably not the loudest, anything like that. But we have got the smartest group of kind of regular listeners that engage and talk with us and talk with each other. I am just so happy to give you guys a big hello. And we're finally back. We've gotten a few little comments of like, when are you guys coming back? (laughs) Yeah, the community, you're meaning a lot about the Facebook group right now. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, we've got a very large and growing Facebook group. We have a private Facebook group where people can speak with each other. And then actually we have a third Facebook group, which is patrons who support us and have joined a kind of a little bit more of a smaller exclusive community that are called NeuroNerds patrons. They also have their own Facebook group where we can talk very directly with them. But one of the things we love about when we're talking about the group, it's because we love geeking out on this stuff and talking about it and I love seeing how much it just people talk about it in their everyday lives, right? Like we wanted to do this podcast to make this stuff become real and really alive and vivacious. And so one thing about podcasting is you just send it out one direction, right? And you talk and you and I chat and we bring people on that we love hearing from and we do get one-way feedback from the reviews, which is amazing. Love yes, that. Thank you very much for that. Yeah. yeah, it really is so fun to see that then everybody starts really engaging and digesting and feeding us back stuff. And if you're not part of the community that we're talking about, we're not leaving you out. It's an open community. You're welcome to join in. You can call yourself a super nerd or a neuro nerd. Just jump on the Facebook group and you'll find a lot of your people. That's it. So let's get going on the season, right? Like we are ready to start podcasting and start sending some, we've got a really good list of content already, whether both topics that you and I are going to talk about, as well as already in the can, multiple interviews and some set up. So it's going to be good. That's right. And what we decided to do, Anna and I both really heard you all wanting to hear more about some of the diagnostic pieces, particularly narcissism and borderline personality disorder. And so as we put our heads together about how to best do this in a way that honors both the person afflicted with this and then also people in relationship with them, is that we thought we would have, we're going to weave conversations about narcissism and borderline all through the season. So we're going to get started today on narcissism. I think it's just wonderful to talk about it. But this isn't it. We're going to continue to develop it because it's an important enough concept and it affects enough people that it deserves way more than just a quick 
30 minute session. We could talk about it all season and hit so many different other complexities. So let's jump in. And well, what is what about healthy narcissism? That's what I was about to say. One of the things is like, you know, when we use the word narcissism, borderline personality disorder, it makes it sound like that that word is only associated to disorder. And yet all of us have hopefully some element of narcissism in us. Right. There's actually such a thing as not having enough narcissism. And it's not healthy. But like you and I, we have to have we have to get our narcissism going to even do this podcast. <laughs> or if you ever do public speaking, or if you ever submit a report or anything that you have to have like, it's like a healthy entitlement. So a funny side note on that every once in a while when we're about to get rolling, and we're trying to get in our space. And those of you that know me know that I, I love to have my arms around topics before I turn the microphone on. And sometimes Sue will just say, hey, just relax. Get your healthy narcissism on. <laughs> <laughs> you know more about this than a lot of people. So. Yeah. She's just like, get your healthy narcissism. It's another way of saying, just feel your sense of self, be inside yourself, and really roll with that. Be confident instead of overly in tune to what could be out there. And I love that. And you're definitely not someone that I would consider narcissistic um, at all. And as a matter of fact, that's what we're talking about is like building that up just a little bit. But let's move now, though, to the problem of narcissism. Yeah, I think right now it seems to be a very common topic in our environment. It's, yeah, it's very popular. And this one, we're just going to talk about narcissism, the person who is afflicted with narcissism. The focus will be on what it is, what it is we're seeing. Later in the season, we're going to talk about malignant narcissism. And that will be when we talk more about our political landscape. <laughs> so we're not going to shy away from it. But for right now, let's just keep it a pure conversation about a very painful phenomenon. And it is painful. It doesn't feel painful when we're maybe engrossed with somebody that we feel are showing some of the characteristics. So let's talk about the characteristics of narcissism. Often, what is the most known is a sense of grandiosity, a sense of confidence and superiority over others. That's right. And that could be anything from a CEO or a leader of a church, you know, a group as someone that has people follow them, a boss, or even just anybody that derives their self-esteem from the outside, that they need the affirmation from the outside in order to maintain their internal validity. And again, all of us need that to some degree. But this is where it goes rampant. And the reason for that, I want to get in really early that we're not going to talk smack about people with narcissism, even though we know that people that suffer from this cause problems and cause a lot of pain for people. We're going to come at this from a very compassionate place because this is an injury. And you'll hear in the psychological literature about narcissistic injury. And so I want to just get in that real quickly that these would not be secure people. As a matter of fact, if you want to tie it into some of our attachment conversation, it's not always but it's associated more on the blue side and on the blue side, meaning on the more dismissive, avoidant attachment side. And you'll hear elements of that as we walk through it. And it's important to know that, of course, not everybody that falls predominantly in the blue side is narcissistic. And what's really important, maybe to distinguish that how we actually reference somebody from a psychologist's perspective as it 
manifesting that we have some tendencies versus a disorder is important. We all have narcissism. It's a matter of what degree and that it's only in the much higher degree that we would call it disordered or problematic. And it's not even that we're judging it. It's that it's problematic for the person who suffers from it. And that it infiltrates most every relationship to a point that it impairs, that it's a significant impairment in the daily functioning or social relationships. And as we talk about falling on the blue side, sometimes we live on the blue side, but sometimes we all travel there. And when we travel there as well, and we're in the state of defense, remember about the blue, it's a defense. And so it's when we feel very deeply vulnerable, but can't tolerate that experience that we pull into what we call a narcissistic defense to avoid an injury. And when you said narcissistic injury, let's talk about that. What does that mean if we're just talking about all of us having a narcissistic injury? Well, it's anything to our ego, to our pride. So again, healthy narcissism is that basically when we're affirmed by other people, we all have a little bump of pride. And when someone doesn't like us, devalues us, it injures our pride. And we all need that. If we don't have those two dynamics, we wouldn't be a social world. So we need to feel affirmation. That is not a negative thing to be able to build our identity by getting some affirmation or feeling hurt or injured if we maybe get criticized or put down. The fact that you have an emotional experience of that is actually really, really healthy. You're right. And you know, you, you mentioned the grandiose narcissism. So let's also roll in the other side of the coin. So I think the grandiose narcissist is someone that's easy to spot. And you can feel it because when their light shines on you, it feels so good. You feel so special and it's amazing and you would almost do anything for them. And as long as you're mirroring them back and making them feel good and it works for them, then you may get that light. But anything can happen where that light will move. And once that light moves, it is dark and it is painful because that disconnection has really happened because they were relating to you not from a place of connection, but from a place of their need to be validated. That's a really great way to say it. So on one side, it's grandiose. But on the other side, I call it negative narcissism. Some people call it like a depressive narcissism. But it's basically the I'm closer to this one. I am so horrible. I am worse than anybody on the planet, <laughs> which makes me very special in my badness. And so it's comforting to me to think I'm not so special in my goodness or my badness. But those of us that are highly self-critical, easily injured by others, kind of get consumed with an injury and then want, you know, so basically it's the opposite of it. I think it's grandiose narcissism. I love that we're juxtaposing those two because I think our more typical mainstream understanding of a narcissist is somebody who walks around feeling superior and grandiose and better than. And so we're like, okay, that's a narcissist. And it's so hard to recognize that when we think we are the worst, most horrible thing, that's the same reflection. It's, right. it's, it's the opposite, but it is, and, and so let's pair what that is. What is in common in there is the feeling of your, like pulling away from a, a sense of connection or community and seeing yourself in a way that, like it, that's part of the issue at hand. And that's why you can relate it to the blue because 
part of what we understand about the blue is that the risk of being in a related place is too much. And so we've learned to cut off. And so in a grandiose way, we cut off and we need to be the best so that actually we're not in relation to anybody. We have to be over them. We have to be the best or it threatens our sense of identity or who we are. And so many often we don't think about when we're the worst it means we're the worst under everybody. So again, it's a non-relational way of being. And it is also an element of narcissism. It's hard to imagine that. It's so true. And what I like to think of it is that in every grandiose narcissist, inside them, there is this highly insecure child, shame-filled child. And that's why we have to overinflate and look like we know it all is only because of this insecurity that's so low. But maybe what's inside the one that is in the, I'm a piece of crap, I'm the worst in the world, is also the reverse. That maybe that there's a sense of, I'm supposed to be this greater than, this rock star, this better than. And if I'm not that, then I'm nothing. Mm-hmm. And so that's another sign of it, of it when it like flips like that. One can think of that as each one of them, I love what you said, and they're consumed with themselves. I might be consumed with my own pain, so I'm narcissistically oriented, <laughs> or I'm consumed with being loved and adored, which is still narcissistically oriented. Well, and to remember again that these are elements and periods and moments that we all have. You can probably remember failing something and thinking, oh my God, I'm the worst, or doing really awesome in something and going, Oh, you know, I could relate to that as a, as a psychologist, you know, like walking out and I just know the session was just amazing and just feeling <laughs> Rocky music's playing. Yeah. Like, yes, I know that feels so good, you know? And I could also relate, Oh my God, like having weeks where I feel like missing the boat. And, you know, so those are experiences that we all are going to fall into. But that's different, though, than if somebody lives in this place and really has that very early narcissistic injury, which I want to say more about as we go. But it's where that they're much more compelled, like you're not compelled to be, I mean, we're all sort of compelled to be adored by people. (laughs) Let's just say that. But it's not your primary motivation. You have empathy and you're wanting to help someone. And yeah, it's a bonus to be able to walk out and feel great. But that you can also feel when that doesn't work and be deflated by that is actually a pretty relational place. So when we're talking about actual, like if we can move into like actual real narcissism, basically those folks or basically they're compelled more by image and, and it's short term image. They would rather look really good in the moment, but they're not as concerned with like the ongoing things like integrity and morality and trust over time things like that are less compelling to them. I would even say, depending on how deep it goes, and I think this is a really important point, when we say compelling, a lot of times it's actually not tolerated. We can't act like in the deeper states, there's not awareness of it, right? So it's like the lack of awareness. So if we relate it to some, I love what you said about going back to the narcissistic injury of a child. Oftentimes when we see somebody grandiose and superior and some of the qualities that go with that, it can so when we recognize it. It elicits such strong negative feelings, doesn't it? Oh, it really does. Especially, so it elicits hostility. And if we want to take them down a few pegs. Feel very compelled at the time, don't you? Or you feel taken down a few pegs. Like you end up with the shame. 
And that is actually why being in a relation, as we talk about on the podcast all the time through neuroception and engagement, it's that the what comes across from that individual who is in this grandiose, in this fight to not be able to be relational really does evoke you in a way that brings some primitive things out. And we'll continue to really talk about this, but getting to the child is so easy, don't you think? For people to imagine that that child was spoiled and being given everything, and that really isn't true. Right, right. It's it's typically, because they come across often as jerks, truthfully, <laughs> a common scenario is that often a parent that has had narcissistic parents, that's true too, but where that they were valued, the, the young child pre-narcissism was valued for what they brought to the parent, for their role not so much for who they were. There's always a judgment. Even if the verdict is positive, they're being evaluated. So things are good or bad. They're being good or bad. And so remember about the light when you're in the light. So if you're in a parent's light, there's a term that is important to understand called narcissistic extension. So what happens for a child is that they learn that as long as I'm tap dancing or smiling or being really good in a particular way or adoring my parent, whatever it is that lights the parent up, then we're good. But if I begin to be mad at the, like basically if I get three dimensional where the parent's going to have to see inside of me instead of me see inside of them, then the connection is cut off. That's what we call a narcissistic extension is when we have learned to support the other person's ego by giving them what we know that they want. That's part of what causes the injury. That's a wonderful way to see it. And then I love how you're saying it. And when that doesn't happen, if, if, if a child turns to their own needs and that parent feels that break and is activated by it, it's not a safe thing. It's not a safe thing to tune in. And oftentimes people can relate to, to that the parents, that your achievements were such a reflection of the parent's worth. And so there's a way to have a reflection of the self as a parent or to feel really happy about um, our child's experience of some success. And those are really different experiences in a child's body. It really is because I think about all of us who have had kids there's a narcissistic reason we want kids. You know, we just want kids. But it's balanced with this empathy and relationship with the child. Where in these dyads, I like that you said the thing about, uh, the, the, well, the judgment and the uh, achievement is an important term. Because another way that you can create someone that will struggle with narcissistic tendencies is to, this is really relevant in our parenting culture today, is if you orbit the child and you get the child to, like, there is a period of time in every child's life that they really are the center of the universe, but it's a month, you know, it's a few months long. But when we extend that, where that everything orbits the child, and so the child is the best violist, and the best this, and oh, their sneezes are so cute. Again, there's a period where that's wonderful, and the child is special. But the child is never actually more special than the other special child that's over there in the classroom. And that's a deflation for the child. But we want them to have that deflation when they're young, when they can connect then to the other let's call it a classroom, where that now, oh, we're all special here in these different ways. But if we keep propping our child up 
into this, you're the most special thing in the universe and don't give them natural, no, you're irritating. <laughs> no, you're this, no, you're that. Then they're going to really be vulnerable to these narcissistic injuries later. And they won't be able to tolerate, you know, boundaries or distress or bad grades or whatever it is. Part of the experience of that, if when you're saying you're so great. And of course, we're not saying that we shouldn't feel pride and excitement in our children, because that's such a wonderful thing. I know you're not hearing that. But it's so important. Like if you think about it, when children are overinflated, they also know that they're not that great. And so there's an inconsistency there. And that can promote almost a need of a false self. Oh, I love that you said that word. Right. It's, it's a need of a false self, because internally, a child knows that they're not the best of this or the best of that. But if the parent needs you to be the best, and the parent needs you to be the best, not for your own experience, but so that they can feel a sense of accomplishment or reflection, that actually induces an experience of fear in the child. It doesn't experience confidence, right? It may on some surface level, but if it isn't actually felt, I feel really accomplished, and then I feel connected with my parent seeing what I feel in my accomplishment, and it's just about the parent's pride, it can create a sense of an anxiety. And I need to keep watching, I need to then keep reflecting, I need to be the best. And as I'm the best, I'm worthy. But if you think about the counter to that, and this is where the narcissistic injury comes in, if I'm not the best, then what does that mean? Exactly. I'm the bottom of the pool. <laughs> I'm so happy that you said this um, false self idea and coupled it with fear. And and I might even take it a little further and that when you've really been baked early on in needing to mirror back your caregiver, then things like your own vulnerabilities, things like that, I think can be experienced as humiliating. So what that looks like later is to admit you're wrong, to express gratitude to someone, to own a need. Like someone said to me not too long ago, uh, you need to read this. And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> it's like, I think you would like me to read this, you know? So like bringing back the desire of the child to share something. And this is a really important point because a lot of us, when we, we always joke around Anne about talking about the V word of the vulnerability, but when we have a really strong reaction to it, it's kind of a sign again of these injuries of like what we're not allowed to be needy. We're not allowed to be emotional or negative or whatever it is that we've been shut down for. Yeah, I really love what you're saying. In the not allowed part, I, I, I think the shutdown part is really relevant in what you're saying. Because it's sometimes one of the things that can make us angry about a, somebody being in that state is it almost seems volitional. It does. Right? It seems like, do you not see like how you think you're superior? And because partly the way it gets manifested is through criticism, right? So somebody that needs to feel in a grandiose or in a superior place, one of the ways they protect that experience is through criticism of others. I love you're right on track with where I was hoping to go. So we are just syncing up. Oh, season four is going to be good. <laughs> I was thinking about that exactly, which is that people that, that struggle with narcissism will have to devalue and even humiliate people at times. Like you will tend to fall in either 
like where you're devalued and they know and you don't know and they're going to let you know that or an idealized version where that like mentors or therapists even at times or bosses if you can get the idealization going then it clicks back into their narcissistic extension so they're like oh i'm improved because this person can do no wrong and so as long as i'm connected to this person then we're going to be okay Again, it's the other side of the coin of the devaluation. But in either way, like Anne was saying, it's not a connection. The idolization, frequently for somebody, and again, there's a continuum related to narcissism, right? So some of these things we're talking about, some people have it really, really intensely interlocked into these positions, and some we have pockets of it. But if one's had such an experience in childhood that they're really locked in it, the idealization generally happens to people that are, again, like you said, above and where you can't exactly reach them because as you are closer and closer to that individual, the devaluation tends to kick in. So oh, yeah. When you're working with somebody with this character trait, you have either an- your angel or you have horns. <laughs> but here's the other thing is that, again, going back to the injury a little bit, is that when like, let's, I'm just going to say me for the heck of it. Like if I have learned early on to mirror back what the other person needs, and I become an expert at sensing what is needed in the environment, then as I grow up, it's going to be very hard for me to discern because then it feels like my need. No, I want to do this. No, I want to go to the store that you want to go to. No, I want to run errands with you on things I'm not interested in at all, (laughs) you know, or whatever it is. Like, it gets blurry between where I end and the person that I idealize and that I'm wanting a connection with begins. And so it gets confusing about what's caregiving, what's care and just connection versus this impulse to narcissistically mirror and lose ourselves. And when we're in a dynamic like that, to really be able to shut the other person off for a second and feel what you want can feel like it would damage the relationship. So I find myself talking a lot to people about popping into three dimensions, like just where's your three dimensional self, like where that you exist in space and you impact people. And sometimes that's a really good way of like, that's a scary thing to do because I might lose someone if I really say what I want, or even even if I let myself know what I want. And, you know, one of the things I think this is associated with is shame. And Mm -hmm. we can't talk about narcissism without talking about shame because it's, we could bet if I was a gambling person, which actually I am, but uh, (laughs) you're going to have a shame bed typically, which is why there's the need to inflate or deflate, but mostly you'll see the inflation is that this core is that there must be something fundamentally wrong with my own three-dimensional self. And so you often think of it as like, it's ugly, it's impotent. It's like, it's, it's not just, I don't like it. It's really a miserable experience. And shame is toxic if lived in because shame induces this way of being ultimately rejected and, you know, in this species actually not able to survive. So to have an underlying source of shame that you can't tolerate having you have to develop all sorts of defenses. That's right. To not actually even recognize that it's shame. And one, we, we, we mentioned the, the aspect of criticalness. So one of the reasons somebody really suffering from narcissism becomes super critical is that the underlying shame has to be avoided. And we could do a whole podcast just on that concept. So I think we'll come back to it. But just on the surface level, like to experience 
shame is so overpowering. And so one may become incredibly critical of themselves on their own if they're narcissistic, like I shouldn't be it because there's this intolerable experience related to having weakness or faults. So there's a pairing in narcissism that if you have faults and you have weaknesses and people make the assumption that vulnerability and weaknesses are the same thing and that if you have that, you're unacceptable and you should experience shame. So it's an intolerable experience to have faults. So these defenses, when we say narcissistic defenses, is because the experience of shame is too much. And so we defend against it by, I expect myself not to have faults. But guess what happens? A lot of times people in partnerships with somebody narcissistic, once you've fallen out of the idealized space, the criticism can be directed at you because for a few reasons, one, somebody can't tolerate their own weakness. And if you're pointing out criticisms of them, it's intolerable. The other thing is, is that your weakness or the things that in you that the narcissist may feel reflects a weakness, a narcissist sees that as a reflection of themselves. So because of that, they need to annihilate that in you if you're too close. You cannot have weaknesses because it's a reflection on myself. And one of the ways that comes out is through criticism and putting you down. Scorn even. It, in this, I love that you said Disgust. Say, it's scorn and disgust because if you don't get in a better place, then I have to deal mm-hmm. with what that feels like. So, right, but that's not the conscious thought. Not at all. That's yeah, a, yeah. That's a, we're, de- we're decoding it for you. <laughs> it's, re- it's not a conscious thought. In fact, as we talk about through Therapist Uncensored, so much of this is implicit, automatic, and instinctual. So believe it or not, even the scorn, you know, even the kind of critical kind of rage is almost automatic. And it doesn't seem like and it becomes contempt. And the reason it's there, it's almost about survival for a narcissist. So I just think, To be able to understand it as automatic is really important. I think that's great. And just one other quick note on shame is it makes me think of, well, two things I want to say. One is that shame being from the outside in. We've Mm -hmm. talked a lot about shame and guilt, but this particular point is like there's an outside audience that's thinking, oh, way to go, Anne. Or like we fill it in, right? They're not actually doing it, but we have an internal outside audience judging us. And that's, again, another sign of it where that, again, when we're using words like scorn and disgust and humiliation, the stakes are really high on those. But let's move to what we do about it. Again, this one is particularly directed to somebody who may have narcissistic tendencies or recognizes that in themselves. What are some things that they can do to move out of it? I think you're particularly good, Ann Kelly, at working with folks that can be in a narcissistic position. I think one of the things that's so relevant in kind of dealing with this is the part of recognizing the automatic process of it and that you start with recognizing some behavioral aspects of this. So if you recognize that you tend to have a really high inner self-critic at any faults that you have or a really high critic of anybody else's faults, that's not to say you're narcissistic, but it says there's a narcissistic defense happening. Yeah, or, an, or even a narcissistic injury that has happened. What I was thinking when I was saying that I think that you're particularly good at this is that 
so one way to hold someone like so we're trying to help people get out of either the mirroring or the getting away from them because it's just too painful another way to hold them is that these again are human beings that want to be loved that's really what it's about so this is what i was referring to that i think you're really good at at holding someone really kindly and softly while you give them feedback (laughs) because what you're doing basically this goes back to neurobiology is you're protecting them from moving into a defensive shamed place and so you've talked about this on the podcast before about where you say things like i know you would never do this on purpose and you would you don't mean to come across this way in any way you are the best provider for your family like you can hear like there's this like what you're doing is you're signaling safety 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 like i'm not a threat to your narcissistic injury you know i'm going to hold you up as i give you feedback and then we slide it in and then we say, uh, but I'm just wondering, you know, da, da, da. then you can begin to challenge a little bit. And so again, I'm thinking about if you're aware that you're in this position of kind of feeling a big entitlement and things like that, that I want you to begin to question your injury. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. I think it definitely makes sense to question your injury. I think it's like, it's just not that big of a deal. <laughs> That's kind of what I'm saying. You know, even if the person slighted you. Right. Right. That's how they slighted you. That's happened a hundred thousand times before. It'll happen a hundred thousand times again. Why are you on the floor? Or why do you have to cut them out of your life? I think that's a really good point. I think the recognition of the intolerance of things is where to start when you recognize that you feel intolerant of yourself or intolerant of others, especially intolerant of others. If you recognize that like everybody always seems to sort of fail and you always have to be the one to pick it up. So one of the personal experiences that somebody could have in narcissism is actually feeling like everybody lets them down, that they would love to not be alone and think they're the best at things that they're looking for. Just that everybody around them are idiots. (laughs) Right? Yeah, Yeah. And when we're upset and we're not like, you recognize some of the things we're talking about and what you were referencing, Sue, is that some of the comments I make about helping somebody in a blue state. And so... Well, I've always thought of that as like uh, protecting yeah, someone's narcissism. <laughs> right. And when we're in a blue state, any of us in a blue state, some of that's coming out on us. And again, what we mean by that is the intolerance of being able to be in tune with our own feelings, our own vo- vulnerability and our own emotions. That's right. So if we could know, so this is some of the what to do, is that if you can know that you are loved and valuable and not perfect. You don't have to be idealized. You don't have to be per- perfectionism is another big thing related to narcissism, but that you don't have to be perfect. But when you're not perfect, it doesn't mean you're on the ground and on the floor. That that injury isn't there. So being able to accept feedback with humility, that's like I'm, I want to help give you like arrows to point to, so that if someone crosses you or you feel disrespected and that becomes the big deal, now we're all dealing with the thing that is your big deal versus wait a minute, there was feedback there that you may have missed because of your, now you're so upset about someone crossing you. That's why we started off by saying this is a topic that we can. So big. It's there's so many things that I want to, and I'm tempted to add and we can't cover it all. Right. But I love some of the examples that we're using. And remember again, in thinking about it as a continuum, and maybe you're getting in touch with your own or somebody you loves tendency to be there. I also want to remind you not to imagine because you're hearing some of this, that everybody in your life is narcissistic because we all get in those defensive places where we get critical and we can't hold and 
we think we're superior. So I just want to kind of do a little caveat on that because I think we can't overestimate some of these defenses that we naturally see in people as a disorder, if you will. So I just, for some reason, I'm feeling a need to kind of put that disclaimer in. So you guys, y'all know what she's doing. She's uh, supporting people's narcissism in a way of like, hey, we're not talking about you necessarily or everybody that you're with. It's super sweet, I think. Like, So, you know, a great example of not narcissistic experience was that I was at this conference and this very esteemed psychoanalytic practitioner. So there was this person that we all loved that was teaching us and the presenter called on this particular person and he asked a question and she answered it. And I think she said something like, oh, that's a great question. It was just something small, you know. And so everybody's just very, you know, stoic and neutral. And if you've ever been to a psychoanalytic meeting, you know, it's kind of serious and a little stern and a little. (laughs) Yeah. So then at the end of it, he walks out in the hall and he starts doing this huge dance and this jig. And he was like saying, like, she called on me. She (laughs) called. And so the ability to have the joy of being picked is actually not narcissistic. Someone with more narcissistic tendencies would be like, well, of course she picked me and I'm not going to show anyone that I care about that versus like somebody who's really just able to celebrate like, oh my gosh, I came in first. I can't believe it. That that's actually a really wonderful quality that we're trying to help promote. It's like you get to celebrate the good things. This isn't don't be too big. It's like be your exact right size whatever that is at any given moment. So even if you're feeling small, it doesn't mean you're a bug on the rug, you know? It just means that in that moment you're feeling small and that all humans have imperfections, including us. And we're just one of the masses. We're not up in the tower outside of the plebeians. (laughs) We're just right in the middle of this crowd of scared, (laughs) struggling human beings trying to be together. You know what you highlight in that? And and honestly, sometimes it's hard for somebody to be caught in a really narcissistic state to even understand what, why one would be motivated to shift from that. Because if you walk around feeling great about yourself and superior and... Right, why lose that? (laughs) Right, because it also is followed by a lot of high achievement and pushing, pushing, pushing and getting to the top and getting to the top. And so, you know, our culture can kind of really reward that. It's like, why would one be motivated? And you just brought up the one of the best answers. And that is because one of the things is if you have to rely on the external world to keep that going for your self-esteem, it is a never-ending process. It is never satiated. And so with that, there's a hollow experience of it. And later in life, that untended, you feel that hollow experience of it. And why I bring that up right here is your story really reflects is when we get away, the reason he could dance is he could experience his own vulnerability and his own admiration of her. And he could let that be seen. And I think we could do a whole session on the difficulty of gratitude and appreciation related to narcissism. And so we'll hold that because that's a really important element, but I think we should hold that. But he's a feeling appreciation. And so what you're describing is the vivaciousness one feels when they're not even focused on superiority. They don't need that for the identity. And really what it was is the excitement about the connection and the energy between two people, which is more even. and And that is what lights up our life more. And 
I love that example because you could almost feel the dancing with. And that is what we live vivaciously in, not achievement. So he could share his joy and that didn't give him an ego hit. Like, again, yeah, I love what you're saying about the vulnerability. It wasn't an ego hit. And and the wonderful part is everybody in the hall, you know, joined him, smiled. You know, if you're in an ego hit, you will look around at people's faces. And rarely will you see people joining in this more deep sharing, right? You might think you're being admired, but that is not a shared unit experience. So another example, just as we kind of wrap this up about kind of what to do or what not to do, is if you notice, if you make a mistake, let's say, and you're super remorseful, and you're super apologetic, in a way, what you're conveying is mistakes are bad, they should be rare, and we should you know, be very stern and condemning ourselves for this mistake, which is not necessarily, this is not the direction we want to go. I think of another quick example where a person that was doing my tax returns, I hardly ever look at them and I happen to look at them and I know nothing about math and taxes and stuff like that, but I even noticed something was wrong and I pop it back and she responds and she's like, what did she say? It was something like, oops, and uh, uh, glad you caught it. And then, I mean, there was literally no apology and it was so interesting to me because it was just like, well, fuck that one up or something just acknowledging. And it really helped. Like if there had been tons of apology coming back, I could have easily felt more wounded or felt like, oh my gosh, do I trust this person? But she was so fluid in how she got the hit that it sort of led me to be like, oh, it's all okay. Everything's okay. Yeah, she just screwed up this one time. You're just mistakes happen. That's and when right. you can, when she you- didn't defend. She didn't deny. She didn't blame someone else or explain. So that was wonderful. And so what we're doing is we're pointing to the direction to go in. If you find yourself relating to any of these things, that we're all human messes, not better than, worse than. If you admit a shortcoming, it doesn't mean that you're bad. As a matter of fact, it means that, like, join us. Join us in this world of imperfect human beings. Because there's such a relief in it. And again, that's the green part. The green is not perfection. The green is we all know we have these areas that are hard for us and our shadow sides. And it's the integration of that of that part of us rather than a denial. So to some of the wrap up with this, and again, as we said to begin with, there's so much more to cover and we will continue to do it. But as a wrap up to that, what we're talking about is really working on the integrations of both sides of ourselves in this loving way and the ability to stay connected to people. And remember when we are in our narcissistic state or if we have the deep defense of that, it is focused on being over superior or deeply under. That's not connected. So we want the motivation for connection. So just remember, even the most arrogant, narcissistic person out there, the reason for all the blubber is that they can be just excruciatingly wounded by criticism. And so if you can see them with compassion, they wouldn't have to inflate if they felt that great about themselves. So we can see the young, scared child in them, and that might help us be able to both stay in three dimensions ourselves and not 
lose ourselves, but also see them in a way that they actually really need. The reason they're puffing themselves up is because they want to be loved and they want to be connected and it is not to hurt anybody. And that they're very scared. It's really hard to remember that somebody underneath that defense is actually really, really scared and doesn't know it. That's the hardest part. Exactly. Okay, this is so fun. Welcome to season four of Therapist Uncensored. And by the way, we have our workshop coming out on October 16th. It's actually a e-course that's going to be evergreen that you can sign up for. And here's the title. You will recognize it if you're a longtime listener, because it's one of our favorite taglines. So the, the short title, it's not me, it's my amygdala. And what we do is we're going to take a lot of really important and amazing information like we do on the podcast because we're going to condense it in this one course. We're going to take you on a journey all the way through. And in the end, really going to talk about the how-tos and what to do with the knowledge that you have. So we're really excited about it. So if you are interested, you can check this out on Eventbrite. You would go to attachmentexplain.eventbrite.com. Another way to do it that might be easier, you just Google, it's not me, it's my amygdala, or you can find it on our website, therapistuncensored.com. That's right. And if you sign up before that it's actually released, if you do any of the pre-release, you're going to get it at a deep discount. The price will basically kind of creep up a little bit as we launch it. And you mentioned, I want to remind everybody, it's evergreen. You don't need to be watching it on October 16th. You're going to have it. You're going to keep it. And you could watch it at your own pace and come back to it over and over again. And you will also, this is not just for professionals. It's for anybody. But for professionals, we will be offering CE credits. Awesome. So it's so fun to be back with you, Sue. It's so fun to be back. Totally. Love doing this with you and love doing this with all of you that are listening. We will see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson.